Good morning again. It's great to see a, a packed house today. And like I mentioned before, if, if you do need a place to take your kids, I, I totally get it. I'm talking to adults for the next 20 to 30 minutes. So if they need to, to get out and move around, feel free to use the atrium or the parents' room. Hey, even some adults might just like to move around. I'm just, just saying. Um, if, if you're uh, maybe new to Bethlehem, one thing we have in the service folder is, a little, folder, folder is a little outline of the way the message will unfold today. So if you want to make use of that, some people like to take notes on it. Some people just like to look at it. Some people like to fold it up into paper airplanes. I think that's usually the kids. But anyway, maybe uh, that will help you keep track with today's sermon. So we're entering a two-week series, like we said, called Circles and Rows. And I acknowledge right at the beginning, you have probably little to no idea what circles and rows refer to. Um, this is a concept we've kind of touched on in the past in individual messages, but it's never something that we've really just dive, uh, dived into and explained all together. So by the end, you'll know what circles and rows mean, but I'll, I'll, it might take a little bit to get there. To, to sort of set the stage, I just want to throw this picture up here on the screen. And by the way, I know that we're recording this service, and if you're listening online, I apologize because we're going to have a lot of visual stuff today, and it's going to make you angry. Anyway, here's our series goal, uh, just to set the stage. We want to understand why and how we create community at Bethlehem. There's a strategic reason why we do the things the way we do the things we do. And so this series is to really dig in there and just un unfold why it is and how it is that we do that. And I'll explain a little bit more at the end. All right, so here's a picture here. First of all, if you're a, maybe a young person, have you seen these things before? I've got a little bet going, so answer this very carefully. If you're a young kid or if you're anybody, if you've never seen one of these things before, if you've never seen the connect the dots, can you be really brave and raise your hand right now if you've never seen this? I just want to bet. <laughs> yeah, some, some person um, that shall go unnamed, uh, he, he said, come on, Matt, this is old stuff. Nobody's seen this before, but I know better. Anyway, all right, so here's the connect the dots. And this is maybe a little bigger one. There's about 75 dots there, or 76 or so, 77. Okay, never mind. There's a lot of dots. Uh, any ideas what this is? Nobody in any of the other services has gotten this yet. Don't answer, Kurt. You're cheating. Nobody who's seen the PowerPoint. Any ideas what this is? You got five seconds. It's kind of hard, isn't it? And, and maybe you're thinking, oh, this is frustrating. I should be able to see something here. Let me, let me connect a few of the dots for you so that maybe you can see what it is. Go ahead. I just had to leave a dramatic pause there for the people listening online. That's just torture. Uh, this... <laughs> So you see here, oh, okay, this makes more sense. Uh, we, we, cut, we filled in about three-fourths of the dots here, and this is a, an old-fashioned telephone with the rotary dial and all that stuff even. You maybe can make it out there. Um, so once you start to connect the dots, it's like, oh, this is kind of fun. It makes a shape. And if you were like me as a kid, once you got to maybe this part of it, you're like, I, I give up. I'm not going to do it anymore because I know what, it, what shape it makes. It's not fun anymore. Uh, the reason we, we put this up here today is because this is kind of similar to the way relationships work. You can go to the next slide, Kurt. Uh, this is kind of the way relationships work, where maybe in that opening video you saw at the very beginning, there's just this one little circle. And the question, have you ever felt alone? And yet when, <laughs> actually, if you look up the definition of, of a relationship, a relationship is simply when a connection is made between two or more things. Connections, connections. 
So when you look at the relationships around you, sometimes you might think, oh, this is just so random. Why are all these people here? What could we all possibly accomplish together? It's not until you start connecting the dots that you see a shape take form. And you start to realize what it is that you've been put together for. And, and the, the opening video kind of gave away the, you know, the big part of it. We're brought together as the body of Christ. And, and yet, when we look at it practically, what does the body of Christ look like? And, and there's lots of shapes we could possibly form, and this, the series name gives it away. What we believe are the two most important shapes that make a difference in your life are circles and rows. And that's what we want to explain by the end here. First of all, what's really, really important is, just as we talk about relationships in general, we really have to focus on the importance of connections. The importance of connections. And to do that, we're going to turn to one of the wisest men who ever lived. At least that's, that's my opinion, and it's, it's pretty, steady, or pretty sturdy, I think. My opinion, he's the smartest man that ever lived on the face of this world. And, and he had this knowledge over all things. And as he looked at everything that he could possibly look at, the depth of his wisdom pointed to one thing as the most important. Your connections to people. And we're going to look at the, the words of this wisest person that ever lived, so we're going to check out Ben's Facebook page. <laughs> no, if you, if you saw what he posted this week, it's like he's putting us fathers to shame. It's bad stuff anyway. No, the, the, the wisest person ever, can you guess it? If you know Bible stuff, Solomon. Yeah, Solomon. Um, he is the king of Israel. He was the son of David. And uh, God gave him this special amount of wisdom. Here's what Solomon was able to do. He had this wisdom where he could look at everything, basically, in the world, whether it was, you know, astronomy, looking up at the stars and just understanding how they worked and the bodies of the planets, or he looked at the small things on earth, he looked at the creatures, it says he had knowledge about reptiles, he had knowledge about birds, he had knowledge about everything. It was just the special knowledge. Everybody came to him just to seek his advice. He was like the Wikipedia of his, of his day. Everyone just, you know, brought their treasures to him, and he gave them answers. Anyway, as he looked at everything, he took a step back. He said, okay, okay, okay. What is it that's important? He looked at everything, and do you know what his summary of the human life is? <clears throat> he looked at your life, and he says, this is meaningless. If you're ever in a really good mood and you feel like putting yourself in a bad mood, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon does is he, he, he basically attacks everything you could possibly find happiness in, and he says, you fool, this is meaningless. He starts with money. He starts with careers and jobs. He starts with every little thing that you could possibly think of, and he says, meaningless, meaningless. In fact, the word meaningless can be literally translated in the Hebrew, vapor, like the stuff you breathe out in, in the winter, and it's there, and then it disappears. He says, that's your life. Meaningless. Hopefully you had a tic-tac, so it's not too stinky. But that, that's your life. It's this vapor. It's, it's momentary. And if you invest so much worry and, and concern and everything into this vapor, that's meaningless too. So Solomon just views things from an earthly, worldly perspective. If all you have is this life, all you have is meaninglessness. It's not until chapter 4 that he, he almost stumbles upon something, and it makes him pause for a second, and he says, wait a minute, in all this meaninglessness, there's one thing that's actually making this life worth it. And he uh, unfolds it in, in, in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 here. 
This is what he starts off with in verse 7. He says, again, so he's been doing this for a long time now. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun, just meaningless in this life in general. There was a man all alone. How alone? Well, he had neither son nor brother, which means he had not a wife. He didn't have siblings. He didn't have a family. He didn't have anybody. And I know what some of, some of you are thinking. You're like, that is awesome. No, that is so much freedom right there. You don't have any mouths to feed. You don't have insurance to feed. You don't have doctor bills to pay for. You don't have, you know, all these things. You don't have tuition. You don't have to be home at five or else. You know, there's all these things that you could say, this guy's got it made. And, and, and in fact, Solomon says, this, that's, the, that's the impression of this guy here. This man is all alone. He thinks he has it made. And Solomon steps back with all of his wisdom. He's just shaking his head. He's like, come on, come on, guy. This isn't right. This is what Solomon sees. There was no end to this guy's toil. In other words, he worked and worked and worked. In today's terms, he worked 60, 80 hours a week. He devoted his entire life into working so that he could make more money. And he made lots of money because he didn't have any tuition bills or any mouths to feed or anything like that. There was no end to his toil, yet, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. And this is something Solomon so often focuses on. You know how rich Solomon was, by the way? I don't know. He was crazy rich. That's all I know. Tons and tons and tons of gold. He had all the wealth in the world. Solomon understood what wealth could do, and he understood it could not bring contentment. So there's no end to his toil, and then this guy asks a really good question. This is kind of the turning point for this man who thought being alone was such an awesome thing. This man asked himself, for whom am I toiling? Why am I working so far? For whom am I doing this? And he says, why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Now here's what he's, he's really saying. He's saying, I have all of the what's that I want. I have all the what's. But the thing he didn't have was a whom. I'm going to make all this wealth. I'm just going to work myself to death, stashing my pockets full of money. And when I die, I've got no one to give it to. For whom am I doing this? This man was not missing a what. He was missing a whom. And now Solomon makes an observation. He, he just looks at this guy's life in general. And this is what Solomon thinks. He says, this too is meaningless. This is a miserable business. This is a miserable burden that this man has placed upon himself to, to try to find freedom and joy in isolation. It is so miserable. It's vapor. I, I know we're starting off with a negative here. I'm going to make you smile in just a second. But this is kind of the negative aspect to community. First of all, God has to show us that this, this idea of freedom in isolation is not something to be craved, but it's actually something to be uh, uh, cautious of. In fact, as you look at many Bible stories, there's lots of stories God shares to tell people, be cautious about thinking that being alone is a good thing. In fact, I, th I think the very first time in the Bible God cautions us on isolation is in the beginning. You know the whole Adam and Eve thing? The whole Eve and the devil thing? where the devil comes up to Eve and he says, did God really say? And it's like they have this conversation back and forth, just Eve and the devil back and forth and back and forth. And then the Bible says, okay, Eve decided, hey, this, this fruit looks good. And she said, it's going to do good things for me. And so she reached out and took the fruit and she took a bite of it. 
And then it says, then she gave some to her husband. And this next line is key. You know how the next line goes? She gave some to her husband who was with her. You know why it has to tell us that he was with her? Because otherwise we would have no idea. He should have been notably with her all along. He should have been a part of this discussion all along. It should have been two against one. But instead, for all intents and purposes, Eve was isolated from her husband. And that's what led to the first great fall, or the only great fall into sin. Um, there, there's another Bible story that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. It's an account of King David. Um, very wealthy, very powerful, influential person. And uh, you know the whole story with Bathsheba? David is, is up on his rooftop apparently at, at evening, and apparently he can see down into a courtyard. There's a beautiful woman bathing, which was normal. That's just how they did it th- those days. Uh, and so David says to his messenger, I like the way she looks. Bring her up here. And so Bathsheba spent the night with him. Only problem was, well, there's lots of problems with it. One of the problems was she was a married woman. And the other problem was that she became pregnant as a result of this. So, so David, <laughs> the other problem is that her husband was in the army, and he was off fighting. So to pin this pregnancy on her husband, David says, all right, bring him back in here, you know, have, her, have him spend the night with, with his wife, and so that's how she got pregnant, you know, problem solved, whatever. The only problem is he would not spend the night with his wife. And so David had to have him killed. So adultery, betrayal, lies, murder. Can you take a guess what started all that? At the beginning of that section, it says, In the springtime, when kings go off to war with their armies, David sent out his army and stayed in Jerusalem alone. You see, there, there's all sorts of examples of isolation and, and leading people into undue temptation that they would otherwise be able to avoid. And so our, our first fill-in, and I'm going to have you smile after this, our first fill-in for today is simply this. Most regrets happen when you're most alone. I'm not saying all regrets happen when you're most alone because some regrets require other people to participate in it. But I'm saying if, if you had the right people, if you have enough people around you, most regrets could be avoided. Fair enough? In your growth groups, if, you, if you're meeting this week, this is going to be one of the things you talk about. What are some things that are avoidable? What are some things that we could easily avoid if we were just not alone? Um, but that's one of the warnings that God simply gives us. Being alone is not exactly a good thing all the time. Now let's look at the flip side, because as Solomon goes on, he's like, all right, I've scared the pants off you now. Now you're kind of afraid to be alone. Or maybe you're wondering, okay, I'm single. What does this mean for me kind of thing? He's going to talk more about what it means to have uh, a true connection with somebody. So he goes on here to explain. This first part is just deep, isn't it? He says, two are better than one. Wow, tweet that one out. Two are better than one because, and then he goes on to explain, because they have a good return for their work. And the language he uses is like business-like. It's like if if you're working, it makes more sense to have someone working with you because you'll earn more. That's kind of the phraseology he uses. But he quickly steers away from that. He says this isn't about money. That's That's not the purpose here because here is how he explains it. He says if one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. So I just got a quick question for you. How many people have you seen fall down? 
Um, it could be relationally. could be a marriage. could be financially. could be any number of things. could be a career thing. could be an addiction thing. How many people have you seen fall down? And as you think of those people, what difference would it have made if they had someone there to help them up? As Solomon looks in all of his wisdom, he says, don't worry about padding your wallet with money or about working harder. Don't worry about that. The one thing you need is someone who can help you up. Then he, he goes on to describe it in terms that we might not use today, but we'll, we'll, we'll read it anyway. It's part of the Bible. We've got to leave it in there. He says, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So this is usually what I work into the whole mar marriage series thing. <laughs> but just realistically, back in the day, you know, you got shepherds who are out watching the flocks at night. <laughs> you know, the whole Luke thing. Um, anyway, you got shepherds out, and it's cold, and you don't have a tent, you don't have a campfire. You just got to cuddle up with the other guy and just make it work, okay? That's what you got to do. It was weird, but that's what they had to do. Um, so, so Solomon is just saying, look, if you got two, you can keep warm, but you can't keep warm alone. And then he finishes it off here, verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Two can defend themselves. Um, we, don't use, word, you, we don't usually use the word overpowered today. Do you say I was overpowered today? Or I was overpowered last week? There's a different word that we would use. Over. Whelmed. You can say, yeah, I've, I've been overwhelmed a lot. I was feeling a little overwhelmed this week. Pastor Ben helped me out. That's what friends are for, right? One may be overwhelmed, but two, two can, can, can hold off a defense. And then he says, a cord of three strands is not broken. He, he's just using common sense themes here to, to reinforce the idea that the most important thing in your life are the connections that you make with people. If two are better than one, and if a cord of three strands are not quickly broken, and Jesus demonstrated if you got a, a group of 12 apostles, they can change the world. Groups are necessary. Also, uh, our next fill-in here, Number two here, when you're most, you're most resilient when you're most connected. And again, yeah, the disclaimer, connected with the right people, I think we get that in church. Connected with the right people is when you're going to be most resilient. And I think that the most beautiful example of this is in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. You've got um, thousands of Christians who had just learned about Jesus and, and who, who had just been touched by the gospel. They're gathering together. You've got this community gathering together, worshiping every day, uh, even eating together every day, and they like it. You know, this is a close community, and they became resilient, so resilient that when a great persecution came and their lives were threatened, guess what they did? They held to their faith. They held on to Jesus. They kept following Jesus no matter what because they had a group that had made them resilient. So it, one of the things to take away from this is just the importance that God places on community and forming connections with people. Now, the next thing to figure out is this whole circles and rows thing. Uh, here's, here's just an easy thing to lay on you and just let you think about for a while. I'm just going to put it up here as fill-in number three. Relationships come in different shapes. Relationships come in different shapes. And I'm just going to explain it for you by using some visuals up on the screen here. And again, I'm, I apologize to those listening online. All right, pick a dot, any dot. That's you. 
Now divide it by four and add two. Your dot is, no, never <laughs> uh, Pick any dot up there. Um, what does this teach you? What kind of community, what kind of group might this be? Where would you see this? Is there any connection going on? Any organization? Um, this is maybe what you see at, in a large crowd of people. Lots of people walking around. Maybe you're in the mall. Maybe you're, you're um, at a concert or something. It's just a lot of people all gathered together. You have no idea who the people around you are. You're just a nameless face in a sea of faces. Ever, ever felt that way? Absolutely. Is that community? Is that connection? Not so much. Jesus understood what this feels like. And one of the things I, I think about is one of the first stories we hear about Jesus in his adult life is that he went to a wedding. And he was just this face in a sea of faces. You know, nothing stood out about him. He completely blended in with everybody else, just no connections at all, until they ran out of wine. <laughs> then things changed a little bit. But Jesus knows what this is like to have massive crowds with, with really nothing going on. Here's the next level. We're going to make it smaller, make it smaller. What do you see here? There's organization. Some people connected, some people not. Uh, this is maybe something that you'll see in a movie theater or on an airplane, where you've got people who are lined up for a specific thing. They're all focused on the same thing. Maybe you know the person sitting next to you. Maybe you came with, a, with uh, someone that you know really well. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you're there alone. Um, but you all have this common thing that you can at least relate to, so there is some sort of connection there. Uh, uh, by the way, Jesus, can he relate to this? Absolutely. Uh, we're told as a 12-year-old boy, he went to the temple. He was lined up in rows, focused on hearing the word of his father. And many times in his life, he even preached to people who were in rows, all focused on him. They didn't necessarily connect with one another, but they were engaged on him. Here's the next example here. You got a smaller circle, smaller circle. Uh, this might be uh, your family. Some people that you know well and that you all engage. I tried making lines that connected each of these together. It just makes one big white mess, so it's not really worth it. But anyway, all these people are connected to one another, uh, wh whether that's a relationship thing or whether it's just you got a work crew that works together, and so this brings you all together. Did Jesus know about this? Yeah, he had 12 of them, 12 guys. And as we read in our, our gospel lesson here, he, he called them together so that, for two reasons, just to be with him and to work with him too. So Jesus knew about this. Let's make the, this a little bit smaller here as we look at possible shapes of our relationships. You got this one here, and I totally relate to this. We, <laughs> I had these, these two buddies in, in college, and we called ourselves the triumvirate. It's like we were the tightest friends. Nothing could take us apart, and no matter what, we'd always hang out together. We'd always eat, eat meals together, whatever. It's like we're this unbreakable bond. Um, maybe you've got a, a really tight, close group of friends like that or family members. Does Jesus know about that? Yeah. We just finished, in two senses, we just finished the Trinity series. Maybe this looks a little bit familiar, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's a pretty tight bond, right? One, one God, three persons, yeah, that's tight. Um, and, and even in an earthly sense, Jesus had three disciples with whom he was especially close, Peter, James, and John. And, and sometimes he would just take those three aside and say, let's, let's just spend some time together. Another one. Down to two circles now. 
So th this is meaning you've got one strong relationship with another person. Maybe, maybe it's a mom or a dad. Maybe it's a spouse. There's that one person that you can really, really go to. Did Jesus have that? Yeah. Said to his disciples, the Father and I, we are one. If you try to take either of us apart, it's going to destroy the both of us. You can't do that. So Jesus had this very tight bond with, with his Father. He understood what it's like to have that tight connection with people. So again, these are just the shapes of relationships that we can possibly see out here. Now the next one is the shape that God does not like. And the shape looks like this. Alone. This is the shape that God does not ever want to see. Now, there were some times in Jesus' ministry when he was just being overwhelmed by people, and it was exhausting preaching to people all the time and doing all these miracles. And so the Bible says from time to time, he would escape from the crowds to go be by himself. But even then, he was never alone. Because whenever he went off to do that, he always prayed to his Father in heaven. Jesus was never alone. But what about you? And, and this is like the totally you know, deep emotional part of it where it's like, yeah, I know what it's like to be alone because I'm there now. Or you can look back and say, I know because I was there, whether it was a thing in school or you know, something in a relationship. Or you're looking to the future at, at maybe some health uncertainties and you're like, I might be alone very soon. God does not want to see that. And just as Solomon looked at that guy who was all alone, Solomon had pity on him. Pity the man who has no one to help him up. When God looked at you, he did more than just pity you. Because the kind of falling that I did and the kind of falling that you did was a falling in sin. And he saw you all alone, unable to get up, nobody to help. And in order to help you up, he had to be the one to pick you up. And I want to make something clear here. As, as we talk about what Jesus did, you know, to help us escape from our loneliness or to give us a forgiveness, don't just think of it in terms of Jesus has helped me overcome my guilt or he has helped me come to terms with my shamefulness that I've done in the past so I can move on. He has done a lot more than that because what he did was he had to pick you up out of death, which means he had to lay down his life. When God saw you alone, he had pity and he acted. So, so now what happens is this. We go to this next picture here. So now what happens is we recognize what Jesus has done has done an amazing thing by not just taking away our sin and our shame and our guilt, but also by taking away death. He is the dash that connects us to God. He's the one who created a relationship and a connection with him. And that's exactly what we celebrate every week at Bethlehem. The amazing part is it, it doesn't just end here, where we say, all right, you've been forgiven by God, now go out those doors and live your life. Because the, the realization we have is that you weren't just one lone dot that was brought up to God and now you're good. There are lots of other people that were alone and who have been brought to God. 
And the kind of celebration we have over our, our relationship with God is also a celebration that we put into practice with one another. You read through the New Testament, and what does Jesus, what, what do the apostles constantly say? Love one another, encourage one another, spur one another on. All these one another commands because the expression of our fellowship with God is our love of one another. So the shapes that we see in relationships, they come in all different sizes, but one thing we want to make sure we do is celebrate and leverage the relationships that God has brought us into. Uh, next, I'll fill in here. Last part here. So, and, and what we've discovered is the environments that most make an impact on people's lives are circles and rows. Circles and rows. Um, let's, let's finally dig into what those are. The rows. You, you might, maybe you've, you've got it by now. What are the rows that we talk about? Be brave. Church, there we go. The rows that we're sitting in right now. And, and you remember how those rows were kind of set up? Maybe you know the person sitting next to you. Maybe you got your family here. Maybe you're just here all alone. There, there's not necessarily a connection with the people around you. And that's fine because the reason we come into rows isn't necessarily to connect with the people, but we're here to connect with God through his word. Or if you want to think of it in one summary, rows are for being fed. Rows are for being fed. Now, now, here's what I recognize, and here's what we all recognize, is that even though we can have the most engaging, you know, Christ-centered message, and we can lead people to Jesus and, you know, share with them how their sins are forgiven, which is great, and people have faith through that, that's great. They're going to heaven because of that, that's great. We can lead people to godly lives to give God glory, and you're going to say, that's awesome. I love what he told me to do. I love how he told me to love my wife or love my husband or whatever. I'm going to do that this week. What happens for me is when, I, when I'm in that place and I walk out those doors, it's like, poof, where did that go? You know, it was a great idea while I was in here, but once I left those doors, I started thinking about Monday morning or Tuesday night or what's happening on Wednesday, and all of a sudden, the accountability doesn't get there. And you don't really get that in these rows, do you? This isn't a good place to connect with the people around you. So not only do we want to be a church of rows, we want to be a church of circles. A church of circles. A church where we can actually get together in environments where we get to know one another, to, to strengthen these connections so that we actually know their names, know what they do. We know their, their struggles. We know how to encourage them. We know how to love them. You know, what if we can be a church that's not just about being fed on Sundays? What if we're a church where we take steps in circles? Where we can hold each other accountable? So th those are the two distinctions I make. The rows are for being fed. The circles are for taking steps. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't do both of those things in both places because he does. We're not limiting his work or we're not trying to guide the Holy Spirit to do stuff. What we're simply doing is we're curbing the reality of our sinful weakness that we need his clear word taught to us. And then we need one another to help us take a step in. So the environments that we found are, are worthwhile here at Bethlehem are circles and rows, and I hope you can see we invest in those two things. Next week, what we're going to do is I'm going to show you how we put that into practice here at Bethlehem, how we uh, put circles and rows into practice. I think you got the row thing figured out, so we're going to spend some time on the circle thing. Um, how do we do that? And just to give you a, a quick preview of that, everything we do, everything, every environment we create is designed around circles and rows, circles and rows. 
It goes from the way we do our Sunday school fusion ministry all the way up into adult uh, groups that we have. Everything is designed around circles and rows because we believe these are the two shapes that will make a difference in your life. Let's pray.